Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you had a great weekend. It's nice to be here back uh, with you. I hope uh, that you're having a good day. Uh, It's been a very beautiful day here in the Twin Cities. The sun is shining, and I tell you, that puts everybody, including myself, in a better-than-average mood, which always uh, is good. So I've got a great show. Patrick Albanese is already on the studio line. I don't know what he's doing, but he's on the line, and he's going to be coming on the program in just a minute. And then uh, the Monday afternoon mix with special guest Dr. Ed Yuzinski, that's going to be fun, and that's uh, going to be hour one. So let's get started with my uh, good friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa, Patrick. Welcome. Hey, thanks. And you are right about it being a. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in prestigious West Des Moines. Nice. Uh, and you know, and I've been going, you know, making stops at places, and people are in in a beautiful mood, and they're friendly, and they're nice. And at first, I attributed it to the weather. And then I found out that Facebook has been down all day. So (laughs) I think people are like, hey, a face-to-face meeting without the snark. Well, which brings me to my very first topic I want to talk to you about. And that's an article I saw uh, about having deep conversations with strangers can improve your well-being. Now, uh, yeah. It says connecting with others in meaningful ways tends to make people happier. And yet people also seem reluctant to engage in deeper and more meaningful conversation. Um, that this uh, is an interesting social paradox. If connecting with others in a deep and meaningful way increases well-being, then why aren't people doing it more often in daily life? I, I think I might have a, a thought on that, and it's: Are we in fear of getting into a conversation that we didn't want to get into? Uh, I'll give an example. I, before I uh, made my way home, I, I stopped at the the local Target, and I happened to know, you know, there's a, a woman that works there. She's a cashier, and she's from our church, and so we we see each other every now and then. And you know, you, you, there are some people you legitimately do the, "Hey, how are you doing?" thing with. And, and most people, you say, is there a better way to ask that question so I do not get an answer you know, <laughs> that I can't get out of? Right. You know, yeah. You know, and, and that's a, that's a, there's a craft to it, but she's one of those people. How are you? And and so I did get the litany of procedures that she's gone through in the last <laughs> six months. Yeah. And I care, of course, because I, I know her and I like her and she's been wonderful to my kids. I think she sometimes would watch them when they were really small in the, the little, you know, hope kids area. But, uh, you know, are we afraid of that? Are we afraid of, uh, a, a confrontation? Uh, you know, um, the other day, and I don't, I don't know if I can, I, I drove somebody famous to the airport the other day. Did I tell you this? You had mentioned it to me. Yes. Do share with everyone who it was. Oh, I can't give his name, but it was him and his girlfriend, Sherry. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to say anything, but that sounds like Frankie Valley to me. It was Frankie Valley. Okay. 
But you know, there's the there's an awkward. My, my, my he was performing here, and uh, my wife is in charge of the back of the theater place uh, where he was performing, and she. Uh, woke up early one day and said, I, I need a favor from you today, which usually when she says I need a favor without telling me what it is, it's something I don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Can can you do me a favor? What is it? She says, can you drive Frankie Valley to the airport today? I thought, well, this, you know, I mean, she's had me do this before. She trusts me to drive these famous people. And usually there is no exchange of conversation and for a half an hour, I'm in a car with somebody who's famous. Like Steve Martin. I, he drove Steve Martin to the airport. With Martin Short. With Martin I, Short, first, yeah. I that picked was fun. up Steve Martin at the airport, and then later that day, I took the two of them, and it was this, it's as if I didn't exist. <laughs> right. But know, not with Frankie I mean, Valley. No. And so he had, he first got in the car, he was kind of silent. And we had this marvelous conversation that, and this is true. When I get out of the car to get him out and uh, his right-hand guy, uh, Alan, uh, they're like, we really wish we'd have had more time to talk. I go, Frankie Valley said that. Mm-hmm. I go, it, and we were just, yeah, we were talking about, like, he grew up with, you know, he's one of nine, I'm one of eight, so we were talking about that kind of stuff. I go, what an, and it was just, I think I called you right away and I said, I just had the most wonderful experience driving somebody to the airport. And part of it was, it was pretty cool that he was famous, but it was just, you know, I'm doing an airport run with a stranger and he engaged in conversation. Yeah. And it, and everybody was the richer for it. Yeah. So Which why re- are we afraid? I don't know. It reinforces my point. And this article went on to say that obviously human beings are deeply social and tend to reciprocate in conversation. So if you share something meaningful and important, you're probably going to get something meaningful and important back, which to me is at the foundation of trying to find a common ground with people to share that that we are hope and faith in Christ. It has to start somewhere. Have it be small talk mm-hmm. that can emerge into something more deep and meaningful and, you know, not to be afraid of it. You know, it's, it's funny, many moons ago, which is everything for me anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was, uh, I decided to, to learn Japanese because I had some free time, I think is the is kind of what it boils down to, right? And I remember in, in the beginning stages of it, you know, I would say, well, well look at all these, these phrases. I mean, is this all I, I, I say? Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good night. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Well, you know, you know, where's the, the, where's the, this, where's the, that. And I thought, well, this is just incredibly dull. Uh, and I don't feel like I'm learning anything. And then it dawned on me. I said, this is the extent of my conversations in English, 80% of the day. And Interesting. It, it, this is going back many years. And I said, this has to stop because if I'm just going to, you know, engage with uh, 20 different people and it's the almost meaningless, Hey, how's it going? You know, please don't fill in too many details. Just say fine. I'd appreciate just a fine. And that's the extent of our engagement. I thought, wow, I I know all of this language, all of this English language. And on any given day, I use a hundred different words over and over and over again. And I don't have anything meaningful exchanged between me and any other people. So it was at that time I said, I'm going to change the way I do those greetings. When I see people, or as you know, one of my, when people say, hey, how you doing? I often in a somewhat monotone voice say, you know me, living the life other people merely dream of. Now it catches them off guard because of the monotone, but also it isn't the fine. 
and suddenly I'm having a conversation. It's fun. Yeah, it is fun. And I think as the pandemic appears to be waning, we all get back to talking to each other, hopefully face to face. And I think that we have a chance to, to reset a little bit and, and say, I'm, I want to go back and try to pursue more meaningful conversations that, uh, you know, s- spend less time in small talk and maybe have a more pleasant interaction. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's a kind of life enriching. Uh, and, and like you said, it opens the door for conversations uh, down the road. Yep. Uh, and we've told our story. I mean, we've known each other now for 20 some odd years. And uh, I was not a, a Christian uh, at the time when I first started, when I first had met you. And at no point in time did you ever push anything heavily on me. You didn't say, hey, one of these days I want to sit down with you and talk to you about Jesus. You, you just, you pencil that in somewhere, would you? Because <laughs> this is before electronic devices. Mm-hmm. You had to pencil it in. But um, you just took time to have conversations with me, and then sometimes we would engage in a deeper conversation. And then bits and pieces, I was intrigued and wanted to ask questions about your faith. Not and, and this is not the kind of thing I ever asked people before. I never sat down with somebody and said, tell me about your faith. But because we had had such a, wonderful conversations, I asked, and you answered. Well— I think in the meantime, I was enjoying your absolutely delightful personality. And so we had something to enjoy right from the start. There was no struggle. Uh, You know, sometimes I think when people try to talk to somebody, a stranger especially, their mind goes blank a little bit. They don't know quite what Mm -hmm. to say. They don't know quite what to share. They don't know how much information they should be uh, sharing. You know, people have a healthy skepticism. I get that. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were raised uh, by our parents and said, don't talk to strangers. So now well, we're adults and we still, you know, are reluctant to talk to strangers. A thing happened for me the other day to, to almost illustrate this point. Um, I live in the little town of Clive and they were having a city council meeting, which was uh, they decided not it was going to they felt it would be well attended. They've been doing construction on my street. Right. And so uh, they said, we're, we're not going to do it indoors. We think the, uh, there's going to be a big uh, turnout. So uh, we're going to have it, and the location they mentioned was essentially the end of my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, now there's no way to get out of that either. <laughs> you know, so I, my driveway uh, sort of dead ends into a cul-de-sac, and I said we're going to meet in the cul-de-sac. So about 20 feet away from my driveway, people are gathering uh, that live on the street, and we've all been affected by this construction for the last two years. And I thought to myself, I know maybe a third of these people by face. I'm not even talking about having talked with them. I guess these people live on my street. You know, these are the people I've been battling for parking spaces with, or we've all been going through the same thing. I said, that's not, I I said, that's not acceptable. So I spent a little little extra time talking to people I didn't know Mm -hmm. that night. So I thought, well, I should know these people, shouldn't I? Yeah. You know, I got to borrow a cup of sugar every now and then, don't I? <laughs> I think you do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know yeah. that people that experience little simple moments of love and appreciation on a, on a regular basis from others, they feel incredible purpose and optimism in their lives. It's such a simple thing. And I think the more we connect, the more opportunities we have to have these moments of love and appreciation. 
Yeah. It's a dot connector. And the next thing you know, they go, boy, you always make me feel so good when I see you. I'm not um, saying that is always the case, but it does open the yeah. door for, oh, what is that about you? Tell me more. Yeah. Well, and how many times have you, you know, if somebody said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over to the Smiths tonight. And you said the Smiths. Do I even know the these people? <laughs> not going to the Smiths. You know, I'm sure that they, they I, I bet their their house smells like their meatloaf is entirely different than the kind of meatloaf my mom used to make. Right. Which I later found out she, she used Alpo. So <laughs> it was the, the beef chunks well, she had kids that, to feed. Cut her, cut her some slack. Right. She used hamburger helper and helper helper. Right. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, you end up going and you meet this delightful couple. I remember once getting invited over and say, hey, we'd like you to meet our neighbors. So why would I want to meet your neighbors? I don't live in your neighborhood. <laughs> what, good can, what good can your neighbors do for me? Right. And we had such a delightful time. And it turned out we had so much in common. I think, why do I sometimes say no to these opportunities? It's I would say majority of the time, 98% of the time, a pretty rewarding experience. And yeah, we get to share that fellow, it's fellowship. Yeah. You know, fellowship isn't just about preaching the gospel with each other and learning the gospel. Fellowship is fellowship. Right. It's, it's our sense of community. It's yeah. wonderful. Connection. All right, Patrick, let me take a short break. When we come back, lots more with my friend and colleague, Patrick Albanese. Happy Monday. Glad to be with you. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. Welcome back to the show. Patrick Albanese is my guest. We get things started on Mondays on a little bit of a light note. I don't know about you, Patrick, but I am paying less at the gas station. Uh, well, you mean just recently? Yeah, yeah. I'm only f filling up a quarter of a tank, but that's <laughs> that's all I can afford to put in right now. But but I am paying less. Yeah, isn't it funny how you say, okay, I just put, uh, you know, $30 worth of gas in. So, you know, obviously without, uh, you know, giving people a, a hint to exactly how old we are, what was gas when you first started driving? Uh, 42 or 44 cents. And I remember my mom saying, if gas ever gets to 75 cents a gallon, you won't drive anymore. It's over. It's over. That's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you could fill up. And, and uh, my first car was this 1977 Pontiac Grand Prix, uh, a very pretty car. And I think it had a 25-gallon gas tank. So that's a pretty big gas tank. I mean, they don't – very few cars. You start to get into the big, big SUVs for them to even do that. I mean, I have a little SUV, and I think it has an 11-gallon tank. Obviously, it's much more efficient. I think you and I both had the same little Honda CRX. Yep. And I think that that was, it took like a pint. I think it took like <laughs> a pint. <laughs> yeah. I I had in fact I had gone from my little my Grand Prix which was about a 12 or 13 mile per gallon vehicle to that Honda CRX which I think was a 50 mile per gallon vehicle and I was tempted after the first week to bring it back to Honda and say I believe the gas gauge is broken because it isn't moving <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, yeah, it's uh, you, you know you have sort of this limit. I I, I don't why do I don't know why I do this, but I said well I I should fill up the tank, but I just I can't spend forty dollars right now. Mm -hmm. So I'll just put twenty five dollars worth in, and of course I'll be back at the gas station in a couple of days getting that other fifteen. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I, there's something that says I, I just don't want to see that thing hit forty dollars. I don't want to see it hit forty or fifty or. Uh, it's know. a threshold, and you have one, and I think most people do. It's like I want to yeah. get gas, but I don't want to go over a certain amount. Right. Yeah. Despite so, our despite I, our love affair with cars, I was talking to my recovery group that I speak to on Friday nights, men who are in recovery from drugs and alcohol, and I, I was talking about our you know our, your love with your first car. Uh, and when you finally get wheels, and I said, <laughs> I said, yeah. I said yeah. so uh, how about, tell me, what was your first car? Just, you know, shout it out. And the first four cars I heard were Monte Carlo, Ford Mustang, Pontiac Le Mans, and Stolen Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> Stolen I mean, can you count that as your first car? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, because it's really not registered in your name. <laughs> I you know it's I think but both of my brothers had Camaros that got left on the side of the road uh and back then I guess they didn't realize that they could eventually find you with the vehicle identification number you know <laughs> you can't just leave you go well you know but that that's how disposable you say I you know I paid $500 for the car I drove it for a year and it just conked out on the side of the road and I just left it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah you so take both, the license plates off and just walk away yeah, that's what my brothers did. They go, how do you get rid of a car? You leave it. You just leave it on the side of the road. Yeah. yeah my, so my first car was that Grand Prix, and I, um, within a couple of weeks of getting it, I went out and I had T-tops put in. Beautiful. And, of course, Little the love affair with work. The, yes, and, and the love affair with the car was you said, you know, I will never, I'm going to keep this car forever. Even if I buy other cars, this will just always be in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> and I will never part with this thing of yeah. beauty. Um, and uh, about seven years later, you know, as I'm closing in on, uh, you know, 180,000 miles on it and the T-tops made the front end go out of alignment so frequently that tires would last about 15,000 miles. <laughs> and the doors started to sag because of the T-tops because I had to have those. <laughs> And uh, I said, you know, I think I never want to see this car again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was seeing in the news that William Shatner, and he's 90 years old, so you have to give him a lot of credit. He is going yeah. up into space with Jeff Bezos next week. I don't know who's going to pack his bags mid-flight. <laughs> <laughs> Zero hours, 9 a.m. Yeah, he's finally going to be a rocket man. He's finally going to be a rocket man. Got to give the guy a lot of credit, 90 years old. That's pretty impressive. Well, so Frankie Valley, 87. Yeah. And I saw a, a special on uh, CBS last night with Tony Bennett at 95 going out and giving a concert. Uh, and he's in the midst of Alzheimer's. And they thought, well, he's not going to remember anything. And as soon as the lights went up, it was Tony Bennett. Wow. And it, it, his memory came back. I, I you know, I, is that a, a part of that fountain of youth sort of thing is to just have a thing to do? I think so. I, I think when you stay passionate about something, and, you know, I, I always pray and hope that people's passion will always be their desire to to tell people about Jesus. That's what I always encourage. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say, you know, if you're Jeff Bezos and you're bringing, um, you know, William Shatner 
into space. If anything goes wrong, you got the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, yeah, you'd want you'd want Kirk or, or Spock. You'd want one of the two. And seeing how you, Spock is now gone, you definitely have the right guy. Yeah, especially if it, there's Klingons. Especially or, if the, but it depends tribbles. on the, the right. The trouble with the, the Tr trouble with tribbles. Yeah, somebody brought a stuffed animal to the set one day, and they said, "You know, this is an episode." <laughs> <laughs> That's probably how they wrote that stuff. Yeah, that that those were probably the first Beanie Babies. Who would have ever thought, you know, that Beanie Babies would have caught on way back in stuff? My mom and I used to watch Star Trek together. Wow, and that was kind of an, an unusual thing. You know, she, this is the late '60s when that show came out, and. Uh, I, that was just a show she was into. We watched Star Trek, and then we we got very much into Columbo. We had our shows that we would watch together. Nice, Star Trek and Columbo. Yeah. Wow. So you, you sent fun. me a a line which I thought was kind of clever. It, I don't know where you got it, but the line was when God put a calling on your life, He already factored in your stupidity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the most comforting it, thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, it makes you laugh. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, and you have to be reminded of it. You know, you say, well, you know, why, why has this been placed on me? And uh, God trusts that you can handle it. Right. I guess. Yeah. You, know, and, you might have to reach out to him. Yeah. That's, that's the key. And then just to kind of get over yourself to think, yeah, you're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to share your faith with somebody and it's not going to go well. And they're going to ask you a question that's going to make you feel dumb, maybe. And that's OK, too. You say, I don't have an answer for that, but I'll try to get you one. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, a friend of mine when I was getting back into performing and I was nervous because I was trying new stuff and, and you never want it to, to go wrong and you never want it to not be good. And she uh, she gave me such great advice. She said, rest assured, it's not going to be good. <laughs> uh -huh. She said, you might actually think it'll be good, but if you were to see a videotape of it in five years, you would realize how far you've come because yeah. it probably wasn't as good as it could be. And and that is kind of the lesson for life. You say, well, you know, how perfect do you need your presentation of the gospel to be? You know, God has your back on this. It's mm -hmm. like you're going to go out there and you may stumble. You may, you may you know, may not present it very well. You, you, you might struggle at times, but you still need to do it because yeah. you'll, you'll never get better at it. Yeah. And, it, and it's a wonderful way to remind yourself of why you believe. Well, presenting Patrick, to other people. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for uh, not only the small talk, but uh, moving it into deeper conversations today. I think we uh, walked it out. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Have a great rest of the day. You too. All right. That gets uh, Patrick Albanese. Uh, already we're off, the, uh, off and away on our Monday. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, the Monday afternoon mix will be mixed up a little bit more than usual because Dr. Ed Uzinski will be joining us. Can't wait. Be right back.
Monday, 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 Monday afternoon mix. Pastor David Miles, also known as PDM and Rosie B, that's the team. Yes. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, everybody. It's a beautiful Monday. We're all using our deep, here in our deep DJ voices today. Yes, deep. <laughs> I'm Except try. Rosie. I know. <laughs> go deeper, Rosie. See if you can go a little deeper. Yes. How about gotta, that? Got to work on that. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a special guest with us today. I'm very excited to uh, meet and talk to Ed Uzinski. He got his Ph.D. at Bowling Green State University. He's been working with collegiate and professional athletes in various roles with Athletes in Action since 1992. He serves currently as the executive editor and senior writer for the AIA website and also speaks around the nation to college students and churches and men's group on biblical Christianity. Ed, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here, Bill. Good to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And you and David are pals, huh? We are. Yeah, it's good to be back in the mix with PDM. It's been a while for us. Well, it's definitely good to be in the mix with, you know, also Pastor Ed Yuzinski, who served as one of the elder pastors in Ohio with me, um, and just an incredible disciple. Him and his wife, Amy, have been instrumental in, in starting one of the training centers for Athletes in Action based out of Xenia, and their footprint and their love of Christ across the Campus Crusade ministry and family life uh, is profound and widespread. Ed, I would love for the audience to get to know you a little bit. Um, you've been at this ministry for 30-some years. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. I have, yeah. I, I became a Christian when I was a freshman at Kent State University back in 1988, and was one of those package deals for me. I just sensed a call into vocational ministry as best I understood what that meant back then. I just thought uh, this was the answer that I was looking for, and I knew there were a lot of people around me that were looking for the same thing. And so that's how I got involved in campus ministry. As David said, I've been working with college and professional athletes for most of that time. And then my wife and I have spent some time, as David also mentioned, with family life. And really the last 15 years or so, uh, speaking at Weekend to Remember conferences. And so uh, that, that's kind of where we've we've spent most of our time. Done that's a little it. bit of church work, like David said, as a teaching elder in church, but mostly on campus. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, with sports in this world today, I mean, it's great to win and everything, but boy, how important is just teamwork? That's pretty huge. Yeah, that could almost be a whole other call, couldn't it? <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> the, the state yeah. and condition of sports at the professional level all the way down to youth is, is pretty uh, complicated and interesting these days. Yeah. So what do you find yourself thinking about the most nowadays? Well, honestly, I, I have been pretty mired in the race conversation, which I know is reason why we're having this conversation today it seems like i I keep getting drawn into these circles uh really around the country with other folks that are just trying to make sense and trying to untangle what's going on it's such a i mean it's always been a contentious topic it's not as though this is a new thing but it's 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 trending in a way that is even more contentious than it has been historically right now anyways it's so politically infused it's causing so much confusion in church circles and so really, I spend uh, a good chunk of my time in these kinds of conversations with people just trying to sort through it all. Yeah. Maybe I don't even completely understand uh, the difference between critical theory and critical race theory. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it's, it's, it really is a, 
a super dense and complicated academic disciplines. It's interesting because I'm sitting here in my office right now surrounded with books on both of those topics. Okay. <laughs> Literally thousands of pages. And it's always interesting when people ask me about it. Um, it's sort of like a, a non-Christian person asking about Reformed theology <laughs> or, wow. uh, or Augustinian yeah. theology. Right. You know? I mean, how do you summarize that? Right. Um, but critical theory was um, a movement in the 1900s that was really driven by trying to figure out why the Marxist revolution hadn't happened. So for people that were you know, leaning in a Marxist direction that were hoping there was going to be some huge societal change that would happen economically. When that didn't happen, they continued to ask the question, well, why is it that people not only are willing to be exploited in their job and in the way that they organize their lives vocationally, but now we're allowing all this fascist control of the world. So guys are writing back in the early 1900s when Hitler's coming into power and Mussolini and Stalin. And so what is it that's happening in society that causes us to go along with that is really what critical theory was all about. And critical race theory then comes along much later in the late 80s and says, well, as black folks and and people of color, we're going to drive this down even deeper and say, why is it that we continue to convince ourselves that race is not a problem in this society and that there continue to be hardwired into our institutions and the way that we do life as a society? There is tons of discrimination and tons of inequality for all different reasons, but that just sort of gets a blind eye. To it, especially after the civil rights movement. Why is it that we continue to ignore very obvious racial problems, particularly when it comes to the law and how the law gets used? And so there, there was a deep dive that was done uh, in, in, by Harvard lawyers and a whole bunch of other folks that joined them just to explore how the, how the law works to maintain racial hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. There's you won't hear that definition from hardly anybody today because it's just become something so different 40 years later. At least the way it gets talked about is so different, and, and there's so much more of a political dimension to it. Uh, but but that's how I'd answer your question. Yeah, I, yeah. Appreciate, I appreciate that, Ed. Yeah, Ed, we were going to even just ask, so how now, has, how now is it being talked about uh, different than the ways that it has been because like for a number of people up until like even 18 some odd months ago 24 months ago you know critical race theory and crt uh you know that wasn't the the common nomenclature and 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 now it seems you know on a regular basis that's that's being thrown and people are kind of you know all over the map on it yeah and there was a there was just alarms that have started going off politically, and I'm not exactly sure how it started. I know that Christopher Rufo is a name that gets tossed around a lot. He, he's a, a guy that, that began sounding alarms on Fox News and other um, conservative political networks that all of this really progressive politics – that's trying to erase lines and is trying to redefine how we think about subjects like race or gender or sexuality. We're going to throw all of that underneath the heading of critical race theory. And I'm not sure how they decided that that was, how that was the right thing to do or where they came up with that. I know the whole 1619 project with the New York times and Hannah, Hannah Nicole Jones and, 
and sort of rewriting and rethinking um, our, our, the origins of our history and putting a more rationalized spin on it publicly just caught, the, caught conservative uh, political thinkers' attention. And so now it's, again, the definition that I just gave you is hardly one that gets talked about when, when you talk about critical race theory today. Now it's, um, you know, teaching our fourth graders to hate themselves and their country, that only white people can be racist and they're irredeemably racist. They can never be changed. And uh, people of color are always right and white folks are always wrong. I mean, these are the articles that keep getting passed along to me under the under the banner of CRT, and I just say, well, that's not really what CRT is. That seems like an aberration. It's an extreme, again, more of a political position. And if you want to fight about that, you certainly can do that. It's just unfortunate that you're calling it critical race theory, because that's not really what critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ed Yuzinski is our special guest on the Monday Afternoon Mix. And Ed is a follower of Jesus. Um, how do you understand CRT, even though it's, it's seen really in a, as a secular theory? Yeah, so I, I, one of the things that I keep saying to people is, yeah, critical race theorists, the ones that I've met, and even when I did my PhD, and for, uh, you know, five, six years, I was surrounded with people that were very committed to a Marxist worldview, a uh, you know, critical theory-driven worldview, who who were very much trying to erase lines. They're, they really are trying to redefine society. They really are trying to cause a power upheaval and disruption to happen. And they're doing that primarily because they don't believe in God. They They don't believe that there's any spiritual world to contend with. All you have is what you see. And so it totally makes sense that just on a purely human level and a purely human politics level, you're going to have these ideological struggles and these, these wills to power, if you will, um, to, to try to get on top. And obviously as a Christian, I believe that there actually is a God who has spoken from outside of history, who has invaded our experience as humans and who is ushering in a different kingdom. Um, as, as Jesus said, if, if, if I was of this kingdom, we'd be doing this whole thing way differently. But I'm from another kingdom, and I'm trying to unfold a completely different plan in your midst. And I will come back to make all things right. But in the meantime, you're going to have to live this, this Jesus thing out in the midst of these broken attempts by humans to try to make sense of life. And that's really what a secular ideology is. So I don't feel threatened by it. I certainly don't feel any more threatened by any of the more recent ones than than any others that have come along in history. Uh, I just think I need to know my Bible better than the people who don't claim Christ <laughs> and be motivated and driven by that and not just be dragged along by um, really by, po- by political language and by outrage culture and everything that's going on on social media. I need to know my Bible better in a time like this. Well, Ed, you bring up a really good point because, you know, recently uh, a well-known Christian speaker had said, you know, critical race theory negates all the biblical teaching because it focuses on systems rather than the sins of the human heart. And today's definition of social justice is not biblical. 
And the person went on to say there's no comparison to what is known as social justice with, with the Bible. With CRT, they speak structurally. The Bible speaks individually. Make sure you get that. That's a big difference. So does the Bible only speak individually? No, and I, I know you know it doesn't. That's a nice way to set it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I was going to say, you know, David, what are you talking about? But I yeah. didn't because I'm a polite host. For, that's a rhetorical teaser right there. <laughs> right. I love it, yeah. Well, one of the questions that I want to ask of us as Christians is how is it that we have so come to separate out what a biblical understanding of social justice is from the redemptive side of the Christian gospel, the evangelistic message? We, why did we separate those out? And again, David, you and I have talked about this even recently. It's a fascinating study to look at the last hundred years of evangelicalism. And some of the voices, uh, like a, a guy like Carl Henry, who most people won't know he is, he's considered really one of the fathers of evangelicalism from the last hundred years, uh, was one of the founders of Christianity Today, um, helped found Fuller Seminary. I mean, he was a leading voice. And he wrote in 1947 and sounded a warning saying, we, are, um, we have an embarrassing divorce that we're allowing to take place. And that is the divorce in people's minds between the redemptive side of the gospel, the evangelistic message, and how that applies to social realities and to the issues that people face in their lived experience. And those should not be separated from one another. How you come to Christ is through the cross, uh, and it's not through social action, but when you come to Christ through the cross, it will have social implications. And so in that sense, they've always gone hand in hand. But in the early 1900s, we started to separate those out for a number of different reasons. And he said, we need to bring those back together or we're going to face dire consequences, one of which being that we're going to force young people who care about issues, social issues, we're going to force them to go to secular ideology to get their answers. Mm. He said that in 1947. And here we are 70 years later. And, and, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here, the confusion that's happening, because people are turning to secular language, at least, even if they're not fully turning to the ideology, they're turning to secular language, when the Bible really should be sufficient to confront the social issues of our day. Why hasn't it been? Why in our seminary circles, in our Christian school circles, in our church congregations, our local congregations, do we not have a very critical theory about race that comes from the Bible? Why, why are we so, as my friend Rasul Berry says, we're, we, we have uncritical theories of race. You know, we, we don't know how to think substantively about ethnicity and power and marginalized peoples, all of which are huge themes in the Bible. Um, why are we so ignorant about that? And I, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, but in an honest way, why are we so without knowledge? when it comes to these things? Why are we so vulnerable today? I think that's a great question that we all should be asking, honestly. Apart from the politics, apart from trying to figure out what's right or wrong, why is it that we've got those ideas separate from one another? Mm. The transforming power of the gospel, the evangelistic message, and its implications for social evil uh, that takes place around us and how it should apply it to those things. That's always been a huge part of the message throughout Mm. history. Mm-hmm. Let me take a why little... We... Oh, I'm sorry, Ed. Go ahead. Well, why are we lacking it? That's all I was going to say. It's always Those have always been together around the world. Mm-hmm. Why are they so separate for us today? 
Interesting. That's a good question. Yeah. Let me take a little break. You're listening to the Monday Afternoon Mix. Pastor David Miles and our special guest is Dr. Ed Uzinski. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Pastor David Miles, PDM, Rosie B., and our special guest, Ed Uzinski, Dr. Ed Uzinski. Ed, how do you like our bumper music? Uh, it's pretty smooth. I thought it's you'd like sound. it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good sound towards the end of the day. Yeah, it's kind of soothing music I like it. for a Monday, yeah. Ed's a jazz guy. He, okay, cool. He knows his stuff. Yeah. PDM's yeah, got a question like. for you. Okay. Well, you know, Ed, one of the things is that we keep hearing about the CRT thing being the existential threat uh, to the gospel and evangelicalism. You know, and and does CRT negate or in any way threaten the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I mean, back to our, the last question about it, it, it being a secular ideology. I mean, not any more than any other non-Christ-centered uh, teaching does. I mean, it can be a threat if a, if a person decides to trade in their their commitment to the cross to turn to something else that doesn't have Jesus at the center of it. But I don't think it's any, I don't, I don't think it's any more of a threat. And I, I've actually been really unsettled by those kinds of articles and those kinds of comments being made from pretty significant figures in our evangelical world. Honestly, I wish I could sit and have conversations with them to understand why they feel such a urgency about that. An urgency, okay, it, that they didn't feel across decades of of very obvious racial problems and and genuine racial inequality and racial discrimination and racial mistreatment. There has been silence, relative silence about that. But now all of a sudden, there's sort of this rising up, uh, you know, within different denominations and and celebrity figures within evangelicalism that feel like they've got to take a stand and make these dramatic statements saying that this is the greatest threat. And I just don't get that. I really don't. We've already been under, we've already been under threat by our indifference towards racism. That's been the threat that's gone unacknowledged and that's even created conditions for CRT and other secular ideologies like it to rise up because there's been so much silence from the church uh, on some of these social ills that have been with us for centuries, not just decades, but for centuries. But now all of a sudden in the last couple of years, CRT is the thing that's going to take down the church. And I just don't get that. Yeah, I, I echo that. I mean, you know, it's interesting in teaching the preeminence of Christ in Colossians one fifteen through 20 and saying that Christ holds all things together and you have a group of people whose last breath and existence depends upon sitting on God's earth, and that these people who make up a theory have the ability to decimate 
the gospel that the unsinning, unerring angels of Revelation 12 long to look into the mystery of salvation. And so, you know, uh, raising it to this. Now, people say, you know, CRT isn't the gospel. You're right. Only the gospel is the gospel. And, uh, you know, we kind of get wrapped up into this because it's like, well, the theory of evolution was going to take out the gospel. Nope, it didn't. You know, theory of relativity. Nope, it didn't. Theory of, you know, laws of thermodynamics. Second law is that, you know, energy just dissipates and returns. Well, look, the, the Bible talks about how in hell the worm doesn't die. You know, for every action, there's an equal opposite. Well, man sinned, but it says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And so the gospel, like, literally trumps everything out there. And all that all of these world philosophies shows is the eternality wisdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, because everything breaks down except for Christ. I think that we're having a very difficult time, and I'll, I'll make this as a general statement, and I'll make it on behalf of what I perceive to be the average Christian, and particularly the average white Christian, I guess. I think we're having a very difficult time separating out political information that we're taking in and absorbing from social media and from our, our news outlets of choice, and the discipleship that's taking place politically with us, okay, and, and our Christian discipleship that's being informed by the Bible about this or any other issue. And my concern as somebody that's been in ministry and have been in the lives of people now for a long time is that our biblical illiteracy is starting to catch up to us. Mm. And it's, it's making us very vulnerable to all kinds of twisted teaching, a lot of it being done in the name of the church, in the name of Christ. And I'm afraid we're losing our ability to discern the difference between what's going on politically at a secular level and what's, what we should be concerned about biblically at a theological level, at, a, at an ecclesial level, for us as the church, at a missiological level, in our Great Commission, concerned to reach people with Jesus. I just don't think we're being discipled as strongly in those categories as we are being discipled in political categories. And that's a concern. It's a concern I think we should take... Uh, Individually, if we're going to do the individual thing, we should take that concern very seriously individually as Christians. Where am I getting my information and why it is that I think about whatever I think about different social issues? Is it really coming from a, a, a deep and abiding understanding of what the Bible teaches about this category or something else? Because anything other than a deep a deep dive into the scriptures to understand these things is is incomplete at best, and it's just wrong at worst. Uh, and there's so much confusion about it. David, I think I said this to you. I'll tell you this real quick. I was at a Christian school game the other day, and it, it just hit me again as they asked us to stand and uh, for a word of prayer, which was going to be immediately followed by the national anthem. And we do that at, in every single, at every single Christian game that takes place. We pray, and then we do the national anthem. It just struck me again the other day how subtly, I think, we've allowed those two ideas to become so immersed with one another that we don't know how to separate them out anymore. But our political thinking, which can only be shaped right now, it seems, by, by secular ideas, and whatever it is that our Christian discipleship is, those have been, that's almost getting smothered out, I think, by a, a Christian nationalism, 
a civil religion that's coming down from news outlets and social media spins. And that's a way bigger threat. Again, and I know there's concerns with different things that are coming out of progressive politics, and definitely there's some things that are being done in the name of CRT that need to be confronted and addressed. I definitely see that. But it's a way bigger concern to me that people don't know their Bibles and don't really know how to separate their political leanings and what they're being discipled in to think as a political agent and their Christianity. That's mm-hmm. a problem. Yeah. So our goal should be to prioritize our identity in Christ and get back to studying the Word. Yeah. Ed, I remember one thing you mentioned uh, to me last year after I'd gotten one of the many different types of emails that I'd gotten and a person making stats about this and that. And you said one of your big concerns, actually, I'm going to let you word it because it's very powerful what you said. Do you remember on that people don't really care about stats, What your concern, even as you were talking to one of your other leaders was what again? I don't remember. Okay. I'm not, then I'll, I'll I say it, which is perfect yeah, timing because we're I'll, out of time. Right. Yeah. Basically what you said, Ed, was it's not that you really care about the stats. My deeper concern is that you have such a hatred for the mainstream media and the left that when things like this happen in our society, you don't have a biblical answer with the gospel to it. And that was the deeper concern of discipleship. Thank you so much, Dr. Ed Yuzinski has been our guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, Carrie Headington will be joining us back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.